This is Lexis, the podcast all about linguistics. Hi, I'm Matthew Butler. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Lisa Casey. So we're really pleased to welcome on this episode of Lexis, Katie Edwards, who's a writer and broadcaster and who I think came to our attention because of lots of really good articles you've written about English language, including one recently about grammar pedantry, but one I remember using with my students a couple of years ago about uh, accent prejudice as well, that I think was in The Guardian, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so right. Thanks very much for joining us. Oh, no, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm well excited. So, <laughs> we're really happy to have you. Your, your recent article that we were just talking about, you, you, you've talked about grammar pedants and kind of self-proclaimed grammar Nazis. So who are these people <laughs> and what are they doing? And why are they calling themselves Nazis? Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. Well, why are they calling themselves Nazis? I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've got an, an answer for you on that one. I mean, why on earth would you use that as a, as a badge of honour mm. in, in like a jokey linguistic context? I just I just don't get it at all. But there's even you can even buy merch to, you know, you can even like buy a mug and a T-shirt so that, mm. you, you know, everyone could know your grammar Nazi, which actually, you know, maybe that would be a good idea. Then, you know, we'd all know to avoid them. <laughs> um, but yeah. I think it's, you know, because that term, it's like, it's perverse and I think it's more than a bit gross as well. Um, I think, you know, people who, who self-proclaim as grammar Nazis are like really proud of their pedantry and they're really proud. They've, they've got a, a no-nonsense approach to mm. grammar. So it's wrong, it's wrong. And, you know, there's no messing about and they will correct you. And, and, um, and I think they just like kind of pride themselves on like maintaining like standards of, of mm. grammar and you know take it upon themselves we've all seen our social media haven't we you know they're mm. the ones who you know go like oh it's it's not it so I'll, like do those memes you know there's like no all that kind of your shit and all that kind of thing yes um and you know it, it's it's just not big and it's not clever and and it's really it's really strange like how proud people are of that i, I find i've always found that really weird like i was on a radio um show once you know, do a little bit of radio. And uh, I was on this radio <laughs> show speaking to this host and he said, you know, I am, I am a grammar Nazi. And I was like, what? why would you say that? And why would you be really proud of it? You know, but, but he, he thought it was dead good. I think it's, it's I'm just gonna use the phrase that's just recently been coined by Lisa and say, it's turd. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't claim to coining it at all. <laughs> So where do you think they've got this idea that it is good from? Like you say, they seem to be maintaining some sort of an idea of a standard. <clears throat> where do you think their idea of that has come from? And where do you think the pride in that has come from? Well, I think it's 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 private. I think it's it's superiority, isn't it? And I think, you know, a lot of it is is like social superiority. So often it's like accentism, isn't it? I think that, you know, grammar correct grammar or grammar policing or whatever you want to call it is is really about saying you know I'm better than someone else that's just what it smacks of to me and I know that some people think it's really really important and people get really passionate about it and I know that some people think that you know you should be corrected because they're right and wrong answers but in all honesty I think really if you're that person and you you take pride in correcting people and you you don't care what context that's in. And, you know, because there's, 
there's there's a difference between you know I don't a PhD linguistics having you know grammar errors corrected and somebody who's just writing on Facebook about yeah. their day. I think there's a massive difference between the two. And I do wonder what motivates people to think that they should just be correcting all and sundry. Or even that guy, you know, the apostrophizer. Mm. I just thought, come on, <laughs> what are you doing? I just think there's, there's something really troubling about being proud of making people feel crap about themselves mm. or being proud of, you know, condescending to people or, or belittling people. And, and I do I do think that it comes from a kind of personal superiority. I do think it's saying I'm better than you. And um, have you seen those, those badges? And it says, like, grammar police to serve and correct. Yes. And yet there's that yeah. kind of, like, jokey pride about it. And I think, oh, it's, I don't think it's that funny. No, and yeah. I, mean, I remember someone talking about it this week as well, saying they've got this, you know, they sit next to someone at work who's got a mug that says, I'm silently correcting your grammar. And you, you kind of think <laughs> what sort of, it, it, it is an odd kind of mindset, isn't it? I, I suppose it, is, it comes down to this sort of idea that there is, you know, some people believe there is a kind of right and wrong with grammar. And I think linguists generally think that's just simply not the case. You know, yeah. when, in terms of usage, there's we've got all sorts of different dialects we've got all sorts of different ways of using language that have got their own kind of rules and systems conventions but you know a lot of the time it's not a simple question of right or wrong is it no and I think Katie you really you brought out the idea about context which is absolutely key in almost everything is there's a real difference between someone producing for example a, a news report or an essay or or you know a, a piece of work for your boss that is in standard English and then that far more informal you know to use yeah. your example someone chatting about Facebook about their day and then this idea of correcting or bringing that informal exchange into a standard and about why people feel that needs to happen and that kind of mismatch of expectations between different contexts seems to be a, a lot of what where that comes from you you talked in your article as well about the notion of grammar gatekeeping and I'm assuming that's the kind of thing that you meant by that um yeah. why why do you think this is it this is potentially indicative of a, of a of a bigger social problem i talk about it in in, in terms of like power and influence basically mm. and i think that grammar and and also accents they're often used as like a proxy for something else so actually when you're having a pop at somebody's grammar or you're having a pop at somebody's like the way somebody talks mm. what you you're really having a pop at something else that's mm. perhaps not that palatable so it's more acceptable and more people will get on board with you know the I don't like that that voice or um you know you shouldn't do like your or your or whatever it is that's the issue and it's it's like the correct grammar matters more than um the content or more than the importance of what's being said so it's mm. also used as, as like a way to like grammar is used as a way to undermine people and mm. it's, it's it's quite often used as a way to kind of censor voices. Mm -hmm. So you can easily dismiss people by just doing... In fact, that was a thing on social media for a while. It was a thing on social media that you would, you know, dismiss someone who critiqued you by just putting... If they'd done like a grammar error, just pointing yeah. out the grammar. Mm. Yes. And that was enough. And everybody would be like, 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 because that was enough just to dismiss the whole the whole argument. Yeah. And, um, and I think yeah, you've got to do more than that, but you don't and the fact that you don't says everything about how much weight there is in this idea of 
correct grammar and what what that actually means socially. Yeah. And I think Jeremy Axman said it, but he was on about a grammar and he was saying that, you know, it's it's about, you know, if you don't take grammar seriously, then, you know, don't be upset if if we don't take you seriously. Right. Because <laughs> you know, who do you think you are that you're the one who thinks that you get to choose Mm. who gets to be the center and who doesn't like he's, you know he's just putting himself in the position of like the person in authority and the person of influence and that you know if you're not interested in grammar then you're not worth listening to that's don't be absolutely ridiculous that's so silly mm. being good at grammar don't mean that that everything you say is going to be you know really important and make sense it just mm. it gets on my nerves so I think that grammar grammar gatekeeping for me it, it's a proxy for something else it's a proxy yeah. for um you're actually gatekeeping against other issues and identities yeah, um, yeah and we've definitely found that the idea that yeah. frequently it's it's a proxy for talking about people's class mm-hmm. um yeah. or status within a particular contextual sort of situation equally someone's gender someone's ability or perceived disability there's there's so many different kind of things attached to uh, your capacity to you know construct a, a standard uh, grammatical sentence uh, and i don't think it's any coincidence that it's frequently people like Jeremy Paxman who yeah. who sort of sit in very specific sort of social groups uh, that reinforces the idea that that's important. And one of the great things about kind of studying English language is, of course, that people frequently come to the realization that the standard that we currently have is actually fairly arbitrary, that mm, it yeah. grew out of, you know, very particular social groups being in you know, sort of the right place at the right time at yeah, a point right. in history. And that there, there's, no, there's very few reasons why it couldn't be some other dialect that ended up being our standard. Yeah. And the irony of that is absurd, as you said. Yeah. <laughs> So you, you, I think you, you talk as well in the article about, a, you know, sort of personal dimension to this as well and your auntie Annie. So do you, yeah. you tell us a bit more about her and, you know, what the, the sort of personal impact of, of this sort of behaviour on someone like her? Yeah, she, she would brill me, auntie Annie. And, you know, she just, she was just like a lot of that generation. So my auntie Annie died when she were 89 and like a lot of her generation, you know, there, there were just no sense that you would go anywhere beyond like age 14 at school. Mm-hmm. that just you know it just wasn't possible even if you got to that age you know because you had to you know she she came from there were nine surviving kids and you know they they were skint and you had to go out to work and you know they, they were they were sold into work she'd not you know she'd got no educational background she just she just were really nice it was just awful because she you know I loved her you know she was my auntie Annie and she was such an important part of my life and when she she just went on Facebook once and, and unfortunately that wasn't my I'd I'd encouraged her to go on right <laughs> I felt really really crap then because you know some knobhead decided to have a pop at her grammar and then she didn't want to go on again because she felt you know stupid and she felt thick and she wasn't stupid and, and this mm. is the thing mm. you know not knowing the rules of grammar or not using the rules of grammar sometimes you can know them but just don't use them mm. um they don't they don't say anything it's no reflection on somebody's intelligence and I think it is a reflection on someone um that they correct someone else's actually I yeah. think that's that's the real reflection and yeah I just it just broke my heart for her because I thought that her way of her way of communicating her way of writing was so her you know like the, the way she'd write recipes and that or like when she'd write you a note or 
I used to buy her like beauty products and she, she actually, when I started buying them fresh, went quite high end, but that's quite a different <laughs> yeah. um, But anyway, she used to buy these beauty products. And when, when, she, when she took them off me, I used to tell her like, at what point that she'd use them. And she'd write it on the, the, like, the actual tube. Yes. Love it. Like, what to do, like wash, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like that. Always, they were always spelled wrong and stuff. But the thing is like, I found that really beautiful. It, it would really lost something mm, if, mm. if she suddenly started to spell like correctly or yeah. or like a nuts, you know, I'd had all like correct grammar in them. It would have lost something of her. So yeah, for me, I think I think there is there's something a bit sad about trying to force people into standard grammar and standard speech. And because actually, you know, you lose so much nuance and identity and you lose so much personality. And, mm. and there's something really glorious about actually just looking for the beauty in that kind of thing rather than just trying to correct people. I suppose it's, it's like you say, it's sort of connected so closely to identity. You know, it, the way she used yeah. language in a sort of, you know, in that sort of private personal context with, it, with you yeah. and the rest of the family and friends you get you understand and aren't you know you're not making judgments about the way in which she's done it it's more about the content of what she said and then take that into a more public arena and other people are making those judgments without knowing who she is or caring about who she is yeah yeah it's not even they're not knowing it's they're not caring yeah mm. yeah that's the thing and and i know that you know on social media we do so much of that don't we you know somebody writes something and you know everybody goes mm. and has a real aggressive pop at it and we don't mm. actually know any of the story behind it we don't know the context of it we, we we don't ask about it we don't find out about it and you know I'm not saying that we've all got to be like <laughs> you know can you give I'm just going to give you a little survey and yes. you can tell me you know, what, is, what age did you leave education you know I just I just mean that like if you can understand what somebody's saying then just leave it mm. <laughs> just like it's not up to you just leave it yeah, and social media is a really interesting one. And there's there's quite a lot of linguistic work that's kind of looking at platforms like Facebook, platforms yeah. like TikTok, platforms like, you know, WhatsApp, that people feel are sort of reducing traditional barriers between that pri private and public mm -hmm. spheres. And so yeah. the the rules sort of are, are in flux. They're not really being written. And and we seem to have an emerging group who, who like to yeah. police language in public even though it may be on a fairly informal platform like TikTok or yeah. somewhere else. Um, although I think it's quite heartening. There's quite a lot of, uh, there's quite a lot of young people and people mm -hmm. with a linguistic background who are doing lots of really public facing work on platforms like TikTok, mm -hmm. places like that to, to kind of get the word out about why it can be so great to celebrate individuality of, you know, linguistic expression and whatnot. It sounds like, like, Auntie Annie would have fit in brilliantly on TikTok, potentially. <laughs> oh, do you know, though, she would. She, I think she would have been a TikTok star, actually. I think I, think <laughs> I, just, I, I pushed her into the wrong platform. I, I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll regret it for the rest of my life. But actually, on TikTok, she would have been amazing because she was quite the mover as well. <laughs> so instead of getting radicalised on Facebook like a lot of <laughs> elderly generation, she would have made a much bigger impact on TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you speak a little bit in in your Guardian article in 2019, kind of moving on from the grammar idea into the idea of, of snobbery and prejudice around accents as well. So do you think this is this this is following a sort of similar pattern to the language policing that we've talked about already? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. I think that accentism is always 
I think it's always about something else. And I know that, you know, it, it, it presents as being this kind of benign preference. You know, it can be like, oh, I, you know, I don't, I, I hate that particular accent. Or it can be, you know, I've got no problem with, my favourite is I've got no problem with accents. It's just this particular way of, you know, and, and you think, well, that is the part of the accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, no, exactly. I don't know what you think. So you do have a problem with accents. Yeah. I think it is. I think it's always really about something else. So it's really about gender, class, you know, race, or, or like some sort of, you know, combination yeah. of, of all those. And that's certainly been, been my experience. And, and, you know, it's particularly around this idea that, you know, how you speak somehow reflects your intelligence. And again, it, it, it reflects whether, whether or not people should or should not listen to you. I've had that a fair bit. And I just think, God, you know, if I have it a fair bit, then imagine, imagine what other people get. So that you're talking about something from a sort of in an academic context there, aren't you? So you did a PhD in biblical studies. And I think you, you mentioned about how people in academia were kind of mocking your Yorkshire accent. Oh, yeah. I mean, it happens loads. And actually, when I put that that article out, the amount of stuff I got from people in, you know, from from really well-known journalists, you know, all, all sorts of places, medics, all sorts, were, were saying, yeah, this has been exactly the same for me. Particularly, I got lots of people who were, were in law saying that they'd experienced something similar. And so it's, I think, basically, if you're in sort of anything that's considered to be like a, a sort of elite mm. sort of employment area, then you, you're probably going to find some of that because there's that idea that, you know, you shouldn't be there unless you speak properly. Again, it's that idea, you know, it's like censoring voices, isn't it? And it's that idea that, you know, you, you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to assimilate, aren't you? Mm. you if, if you go into, like in academia, I got loads from being um, a student, but then it really stepped up to uh, when, I, when I started studying for a PhD. And then mm. I, was, I was given like serious, like professional career advice yeah. about how I spoke and but not just how I spoke it was also about just my general self-presentation it was like at the point you know as I was told if you want to be a professor you need to look like a professor you need to sound like a professor you need to behave like a professor so the implication there was that I hit none of that right. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is that I mean all I took from that was well it's not me I don't know what it is but what I do know is it isn't me yeah. <laughs> I mean, and what can I do? You know, if, if you say you don't behave and speak and, and dress like a professor, well, all right, then I'm not going to be a professor. That's that's fairly simple. I mean, what, what am I going to do about my voice? I'm not going to shift it. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's kind of the that's the sharp end of basically language prejudice, isn't it? Is that yeah. exactly yeah. as you as as we've discussed? If it if it really is a proxy for other things, then the then the end point is that it ultimately mm. limits people's experiences yeah. and not just their experiences, but potentially even their their career success yeah. or their yeah, yeah. you know their social yeah. status or, or any other number of things that are attached to those happiness self-esteem <laughs> yeah, sense exactly. of identity yeah. Yeah. sense of self yeah that's yeah. it and it limits your confidence which in which in turn then limits your career prospects and everything else because yeah. if we tell kids you know you, you need to speak properly whatever that means then actually it's not like everybody's going to turn up to school the next day speaking like rp Actually, you're just going to make them feel embarrassed about talking, which means yeah. that then when they go into interviews, they're going to be embarrassed and then they're not going to perform very well and so on. So it just had this really crap knock on effects. I think 
that it, it's it's like a, just a way of of maintaining social hierarchies. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a way of of making sure that you know a certain group stay with power yeah. and access certain careers and stuff. So we we hear a lot in the news about the need to educate young people in the use of so-called proper English. And there's been, you know, a big debate ongoing for quite some time about school slang bans and things like that. And there was a a letter in The Guardian last week as well from, it links to the sort of law thing you were talking about a minute ago, the vice president of HM district judges was, he was responding to the the stories about slang bans and telling teachers that they need to teach their students how to speak properly if they're going to get ahead in life. So what's your perspective on this? And what do you think teachers and students should be doing? What do you think is a sort of, is, is, there a, is there maybe a kind of good argument for trying to clamp down on slang to encourage young people's vocabulary to grow in other directions, maybe? No. <laughs> just, nice and to the point. <laughs> the end. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for joining. <laughs> There's your insight from me. Um, no, I just, I just, you know, ironically, this guy's going on about, he's pontificating about plain English. I didn't know what he was on about. I, I don't know what he's, what he's actually trying to say. Because, like, why is he expecting these kids to be, like, fully trained, formed barristers yes, before they've yeah. even done rails? Mm. Um, aside from, you know, what we've said before about, you know, kind of a certain superiority and, you know, effectively telling, like, these these kids through the teacher, you're, you're never going to... Mm. You're never going to be where I am. I just think again, like it's it's the it's totally the wrong way to go because you tell kids, you know, if you can, you told you told the teacher that you need to tell them to talk properly. What you're actually telling them is is that the the wrong and they're not they're not good enough. I mean, yeah. it's it it also seems to be underpinned by something we've talked about a lot, which is this uh, this this supposedly common sense conflating of the way we speak with the way that we write. Yeah. And of course, yeah. written written English does follow quite specific rules to be understandable in a way that spoken language doesn't. And the idea of speaking properly um, doesn't really equate to, to writing properly. We, we don't mm-hmm. speak in sentences. We speak in utterances that are frequently broken and in pieces and, you know, are in little bits, but are perfectly understandable in a spoken context because that's the way that speech works. And I think someone in a position uh, like the gentleman that we're talking about here. I'm assuming it was a gentleman. Ke- yeah, Kevin Harper. Is it? Yeah. You know, it is is informed by a fairly a fairly basic misunderstanding there of how speech works. It does get into a really really gritty thing that we've come back to a couple of times on a couple of different episodes, which is about the role of schools and the role of teachers mm. in language development of of young people, and that is a big issue that that lots of people you know have fairly strong opinions about. Not least myself and Dan, because we're in the teaching profession as well. We yeah. exist in a rather odd space in that sense, don't we, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I kind of just to play sort of devil's advocate for a minute. I, I do think you know you could you could say right. Well, you know, if if the situation is that you know certain accents are discriminated against, and that does seem to be a fact of life. You know, hierarchies of accents exist and have existed for a long time, and young people get judged harshly for using slang why wouldn't we as teachers want to improve their language and change their accents to ones that are going to get them ahead in life? Oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, that's awkward because I, I liked you so much. And, and then, <laughs> no, I think a lot of the advice that I've been given about like changing myself and changing my speech and all that kind mm. of thing 
has come from a good place in people. They were trying to give me the best advice that they thought was genuinely going to help me in my career. And they thought mm-hmm. that they were, they were genuinely helping me. But it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't help because one is that it's, you know, your accent is about your identity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so if you tell people that they shouldn't have their accent, that's saying, that's that's actually really personal. And that's also saying stuff about the family and about the friends. And that's hitting to the heart of, of who someone is. And saying that that's not good enough and needs to be improved is a, quite a, a horrible thing to say to somebody just on a personal level. But also, I think, rather than just accepting that, you know, well, you know, accents are discriminated against, so let's get rid of them. Like, teach kids to actually be really proud mm. of their accent. I know full well that having, you know, that speaking in a certain way and having, you know, people's perceptions of you based on how you speak and stuff, I know full well that that can limit you. But it can limit you also because you're not confident enough because you've been told so much yeah. that the isn't right. You've been told so much that you, you're not deserving of being listened to that actually you shut up. And you stop speaking. And so, you know, you end up with a whole load of kids who just have no confidence in the way that they speak. And so they don't have oracy skills. And so they don't, you know, they, they don't perform as well as kids who, who are able to either switch on an RP accent or speak an RP anyway. Can't, why can't we t- to value different different ways of speaking? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and actually, you know, why can't we grow our own vocabulary with the kind of things that, kids say as well yeah. like you know just, rather than just saying the wrong in the band just say well you know that's that's brilliant and there are other words you can use too if yeah. you really want to extend vocabulary I just think there are ways you can do it without undermining people and without mm. and without teaching people that they're wrong and, and not enough yeah and yeah. I think no, I think that's a pretty compelling argument isn't it that's certainly where we sort of sit on the on the on the debate of it that as you know people who have some kind of linguistic knowledge but work within institutions and wider social systems mm. that absolutely are invested in maintaining very particular sorts of linguistic standards mm. that essentially what we're advocating for is more education more yeah. discussion about language yeah. the more child knows that their that their home language accent ways of speaking and being are legitimate and are valued and are fabulous uh, but also have an awareness that there are kind of broader social uh, ideas that will consider (laughs) uh, a particular standard having higher social status the better there's 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 lots of space for all of it bring it all in bring all the accents bring all the dialect but with an awareness that there is this kind of socially acceptable standard whether that's okay or not an awareness of it can only benefit uh, young people as they move out into the world and have to operate in it. Oh, you said it better than me, Lisa. Yeah, that's oh, exactly thanks. It. <laughs> it's because she says it every week. We've been banging this drum for quite a long time. <laughs> you know, if you talk about improvement, then it's like based on this kind of deficit model that yeah. these, mm. you know, there are kids who, who are lacking something mm. that we've got to try. But actually, they're not. They're not lacking anything and that's the thing isn't it that if you teach kids that they're, they're, they're lacking or they've got some deficit then that's that's what they're going to think and then you've you've effectively just shut them up and your yeah. intentions don't don't matter actually yeah and ironically there's lots of research that shows that kids are perfectly capable of switching between mm. uh, yeah. 
you know, their, their language, for want of a better word, uh, and and some kind of more socially acceptable, standardized yeah. version. And they do it all the time. They do it. They, you know, they're incredibly complex uh, and capable communicators uh, who can swap between conversations with their friends on a screen with people face to face mm. with teachers into essays into texts you know they they communicate in myriad ways and do so brilliantly uh, and that actually exactly as you've said that deficit model is is not helpful and in fact is a proxy for other things that really aren't yeah. about the language at all yeah talking about switching can we switch into the quick fire questions yeah i'm ready Nicely Segway. done, Dan. Very slick. Yeah, amazing. I should be a <laughs> professional broadcaster with my amazing skills. <laughs> <laughs> so, Katie, what's your favourite book about language? Because it's really accessible and it's raised a lot of the issues that I feel quite passionate about. I quite like Speaking Up by Alison Jules, is it? And she talks about oh. language and about, about voice and gender. And I, I like I quite like that book. And what is your favourite linguistic fact or idea? I would say my favourite linguistic fact or idea is that there's no correct way of speaking. That's pretty quick fire. And then final quick fire question. What one bit of advice would you give to a budding linguist? Oh, God, I don't, I, I mean, I, I'm literally not qualified. <laughs> what one bit of advice would you give to a biblical studies student? <laughs> Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> you don't ask me that one. To a, to a budding linguist, I would say, like, don't feel like you've got to renounce your identity and your family or anything like that. And I would also say that, you know, just like you would in any subject, just, like, think critically about everything. Mm. And, you know, even if that's, you know, even if it's stuff that your, like, professor's written or that your professor's saying, or, you know, you want to think critically about everything that's put in front of you. And, and that language is, is political and that's really important. And it's really important to think critically around that. So on this segment of Language in the News, we're going to be having a look at two stories that are linked in certain ways. And the sort of link is about sort of language and power, how people and institutions tell people how to use language and what the implications are around that. So the first story is around a school in South London that I think in October, September, October 2021 was reported on in the Guardian as using a kind of slang ban system. And the second story is based around another educational institution, this time it's Aston University in Birmingham, where their sociology department was criticised for issuing guidelines about certain words and phrases that shouldn't be used and alternatives that should be used in their place that were seen as having sexist or racist connotations. Yeah. This was a really interesting one for us, wasn't it? In that we found ourselves in the interesting position of sort of supporting one institution's sort of instigation mm. of influential power, if you like, uh, but then but then disagreeing with another one and then trying to figure out why. Yes. <laughs> Philosophically, we couldn't really support one of them, but be because they both essentially got a linguistic basis, haven't they? Yeah. So in terms of the, the, the story about the school, this was a school in South London and it was reported on in The Guardian. I think the background to it was that somebody had, had um, posted 
a picture on Twitter of a poster that was in a classroom. It was a classic kind of slang band poster. And we'll, we'll share some links in the show notes to all the other stories about slang bands and dialect bands in school. Yeah, they're not it's new, great. are they? No, no, it's masses, aren't they? You know, there's been some up in the northeast, I think. There was a school up yeah. there, Sacred Heart Primary School. There was That's right, yeah. West Midlands, I think Collie Lane Primary School. There's a big story about that a few years back. Some of the larger sort of multi-academy trusts have instigated sort of federation-wide bands uh, in mm. some instances as well. So the story was sort of based initially around that picture, which then sort of was, was taken offline. But the story in The Guardian kind of reported on it anyway. And in this, you know, the school was encouraging students not to use certain words like like and so you know fillers and things like that there's a kind of yeah, there was, a, there was some nice phrases that were on the band list so things like oh my days was was banned and saying that's long as a way of kind of like <laughs> indicating something's boring or tedious and and that's neck and so all, all of these kind of like newer kind of colloquial phrases Things like bear and cuss and and things like that. We've got a pretty kind of clear stance on this sort of slang ban idea, don't we? Sort of linguistically speaking, it's it's really difficult to support things like this. Like they're problematic for us and for for linguists in general, generally because the types of words that are banned, I mean, I think we take issue with the idea of it being banned or sort of outlawed or kind of Mm. semi-criminalized within the world of the school is part of the issue. But lots of the words that are that are kind of put out there, A, are really, really standard part of spoken mode, uh, yeah. spoken communication. The idea of banning fillers uh, or banning words like like that we've discussed mm. before as having really kind of essential functions. Uh, when you're communicating through your speech and um, is kind of ludicrous uh, and based on a, on an idea about communication that that is a little flawed and kind of conflates speech with writing yeah um but also this this secondary sort of subset of the words like oh my days and some of mm. the colloquial sort of slang terms uh, often come out of sort of minority communities maybe working class communities maybe you know non-white communities uh, and therefore banning words that come out of those communities can be really, really problematic. Hmm. And just the the idea of kind of banning suggests, it suggests a power imbalance, doesn't it? It suggests that, you know, you've got enforcers and then you've got culprits mm. and somehow people that are using language like that are in, you know, there's there's some kind of deficit to, the, to their language that, that needs to yeah. be addressed and they need mm. to be punished for using that language. And it's mm. it's that kind of discourse that, that I think is is really kind of problematic that surrounds it. Yeah. And I mean, there's always the argument put forward by certain groups, you know, who who support these kinds of action, that this is all about improving young people's literacy and that schools have a duty to impose standard English. And, you know, you're not going to find many teachers around the UK who don't want their students to communicate clearly and accurately in different settings. But the problem is, as Lisa was saying, it sort of conflates speech and writing a lot of the time. So, mm. you know, there's, there's clearly nothing wrong and it's, you know, p- positively good to encourage a wider vocabulary when you're writing and also when you're speaking in formal context, but to try and you know, stop people using things that come naturally in informal conversations and to limit the use of things which are quite, you know, that they're, they're, they're things that help conversations actually flow and help people actually communicate with confidence a lot of the time is, is a problem, isn't it? Because... I think in in many ways, what you're actually doing is is taking away people's confidence in their own language 
and the value of their own language and their own identity. And sometimes that just leads to people not speaking at all. There's lots of cases where young people basically just, you know, shut up completely if they feel that they, you know, their language is being judged in those kind of ways, particularly if, you know, as, as you're saying, it's associated with particular groups and, you, you know, whether it's ethnic groups, social groups, where you feel that you're, you know, you're being belittled as a, as a whole community. So there is a problem there, even though you can see, you know, be- behind this are probably some good intentions. Um, yeah, I, I, as there often are, and I, I'm completely with you, Dan, as a teacher myself, like there there is nobody who would say that students shouldn't be able to communicate in standard English. We absolutely support that. Uh, and I think every teacher would. Um, I think part of the issue is... I think it, it comes from a place of teachers believing that having students articulate, for example, in a certain way in spoken English will transfer to their written English. Yeah. And I think that's a fundamental idea that sits under lots of this, that if they can mm. speak in this way, then they will write in this way. Uh, and that's and that's not generally supported by any sort of research. Any research or evidence, mm. no. yeah. It's an idea that's, that's yeah. really kind of appealing, actually, yeah. that if we can get students to articulate verbally in particular ways, then that will somehow transfer. But there's not, yeah. there's not the support for that in any research and conversely the, the fear that that if we don't ensure that that students speak in standard English they won't be able to write in standard English which mm. again it doesn't really follow does it you know we've all spent time with with young people who can really quickly code switch from yeah. from one variety of English to another you know depending on the, the situation and the context that they're in and I think there's a there's a perhaps a, a lack of understanding sometimes of the the flexibility of, of language use yeah um, I think there was a really brilliant there was a really brilliant lecture once in uh, in Queen Mary I think it might have been Jenny Cheshire who basically she gave a lecture um, which said there's no such thing as standard English yeah mm. um, yeah um, and it was fantastic. And essentially, she proposed that in spoken mode, standard English doesn't exist, yeah. at least not yeah. in the way that it's proposed and discussed uh, sort of in general in general use and in common sort of understanding. It just it doesn't exist because spoken mode doesn't operate in the same way that writing does. Yeah. Um, and, and when the vast majority of people are talking about standard English, they're actually talking about writing. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the fundamental problem, isn't it? With there's, you know, particularly when you see, you know, posters telling you that you should be speaking in full sentences. You know, we rarely speak in full sentences, and sentences are a, you know, a written grammatical unit most of the time. It's not a good idea, is it, to kind of give that sort of advice? And I think, you know, what I suppose what we're arguing for is more knowledge about language on the part of teachers and students and the institutions that you know make policy about language, rather than you know, just kind of relying on sort of common sense ideas about language, which aren't really very accurate at all. I think, which kind of brings yeah. us to the second story. So, so why do we have, yeah. why do we have an issue then with an educational institution, like a school banning words, but we don't have an issue with an educational institution like Aston University, uh, putting out guidance about word usage to their, to their bodies. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's interesting to look at what sort of what the words were that were being reported on that they were advising their students to, to think about words like immigrant, third world, tribe, civilized, one man show, mankind. These are terms that you can kind of look at and think, well, what's the problem with someone? But each one of those has got 
a set of connotations and they're going to be very you know there's, there's all sorts of different reasons why some of those might you know you might take issue with certainly when you kind of think about something like one man show or mankind there's a fairly clear exclusive element there isn't there that the, the focus on you know man as one sex excludes women excludes people who don't see themselves as you know a man um, mm. And you know, and they, there are perfectly the, valid alternatives. Of yeah, course, yeah. To I mean, those. You don't have point. to use them to get your point across. Exactly, and you know, there there are there are easy ways to kind of get around a lot of those, as you say. So you know, what what's the problem with with telling people to do that? Well, I suppose there's some sort of power, top down power, isn't there, being imposed? And if we're arguing for you know school slang bans being a problem because it's top down power and a misunderstanding about language, is there a similar problem here? I think that the the, the difference might be that the the language that both institutions take issue with is different the the language that the schools are taking issue with is generally the language of either young people or people from particular backgrounds or yeah. ethnicities and they're being told that that that's the you know there's something wrong with that language whereas here i think that the difference is the language that's being kind of targeted is language that does already exclude people. Mm. They're suggesting options that are perhaps more inclusive. And that is the crux of it, isn't it? It's about it's about the the, the power that's being wielded isn't necessarily different in that they both come from kind of quite rigidly hierarchical institutions and they Mm. are both top down Mm. but I think there's a difference between sort of a ban uh, that's been imposed from teachers onto a relatively powerless student base in comparison to a style guide where there is Mm. no punishment for stepping sort of outside of those boundaries and it's and it's not being imposed it's being suggested Um, and that the suggestions are exactly as you said Jackie more inclusive rather than exclusionary yeah and I think it's interesting what what the Aston University School of Social Sciences and Humanities actually said about this themselves they said sociologists are trained to think critically about language and about how language can reproduce effects of power and exclusion reflecting on this is a key part of both of the subject curriculum and of the employability skills that we develop And that seems to me to be, you know, completely sensible, you know, to think critically, to understand more about language, to know more about language and to think about alternatives is a very different thing from what some schools might be doing, which is saying, don't use this word, don't use that word, you should be speaking like this. This is this is more about kind of thinking about the reasons behind some of these words, you know, having problems associated with them. And yeah, that sort of reflective sort of policy, I suppose, where you, um, you know, you, you as they say, you think critically about language and think of alternatives and think of what, what could be used that might be more effective. I guess mm. the, the thing might be with some of the sort of school slang bands, if they were phrased and framed in a slightly different way, there might be a more positive outcome there. I think, mm. you know, Ian Cushing's mm. talked about this a lot, and I think Julia Snell has too, yeah. about the sort of discourses of sort of zero tolerance, punishment, incarceration, they don't come from place of criticality about language, do they? No. They come from they come from an expression of sort of absolute power. I work in a school myself. There is some space for that in school in school situations, but I think mm. language bans isn't it that there are there are alternatives there. I think what's yeah. interesting for us is, of course, how this got framed in the media because this, of yeah. course, is a lang in the news segment. The the way this was reported through various news outlets was particularly interesting for us, and then how the news was responded to by mm. by the punters. <laughs> That's quite often what happens. You, you get something like this where there are guidelines or style guides 
websites that are that are issued and and have been used without kind of any major problem are yeah. picked up and then the story is kind of spun in a way in which it that makes it very much like this is a very kind of top down heavy approach and these right. these words have been banned and if you use them then you are racist and sexist and homophobic and on all of these things yeah. um, and that mm. kind of like creates the kind of moral panic doesn't it yeah. and the yeah. and then you know, feels the, 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 don't know, what does it feel? It feels something. It feels the war on woke. Yeah. <laughs> it feels the war on woke, <laughs> that's is. what it does. <laughs> and it is, I mean, I think it's very much part of that, isn't it? And it, it, you know, I think the way it was framed in both the Mail and the Times, who were the two papers that covered it on the same day, it all came from the Free Speech Union, which is an organisation mm. set up by Toby Young, who's, you know, his politics are clearly on, on the right. And this, the Free Speech Union, picked up this case as, as they claimed a student felt as if they had no power within this institution, that they were worried about repercussions, they claimed, and that they were speaking up for this student. Uh, this was and, a student at Aston, right? I'm assuming yes, this right. wasn't a student from the school. <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't know what the background yeah. to that, 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 that particular story was. But with this one, I mean, it was, it was quite an odd one. And they, they certainly wanted to make a big issue out of it. And they wanted to play into this whole idea that there's a free speech crisis in universities. And I mean, I think a lot of people have talked about this sort of more widely uh, outside sort of linguistics. There's a really good um, person called Evan Smith, who's written a book called uh, No Platform, which looks at this idea that there's a, you know, the, the free speech crisis. And the whole sort of framing of it is that, you know, there's universities are left wing institutions that are clamping down on freedom of speech, that they're trying to police language. And it's, it's a bit of a myth, really. It smacks very much of the sort of arguments in the 1980s and 90s about PC gone mad. You know, that, mm. those sort of stories around, oh, you can't say blackboard, you have to change it to chalkboard because it's the word black is racist. You can't say manhole cover, you need to say sort of personnel access cover. You can't, you know, you and this can't was have... this was really picked up in the comments, wasn't it, from yes. the Mail and the Times oh, yeah. one, where, yeah. where people really really went for it on that kind of thing and kind of took it took it to to a to a ridiculous place. Yes, including someone who's arguing that they, you know, they can't say woman now or female because they've both got the word man or male in them, and it does, you know, it gets it, you. Can, you can see why people might sort of take it to that ridiculous extent and think, well, we can't say anything now. You're not allowed to say these words. You know, it's just my freedom of speech is completely gone. A lot of these cases are actually more about getting people to kind of think about alternatives and to, you know, just to reflect on the language use. Thinking more about language use is not is not a bad thing, surely. And if you'd like to check out any of the stories that we've discussed today on Lang in the News, then check out the show notes. 